Your job is to build relationships. Your job is to build trust, to model trust. Your job is to build a culture where it's safe to tell the truth, where it's safe to make mistakes, where it's safe to admit your fears and your insecurities, where vulnerability is a strength, not a weakness. That's a powerful culture. People don't quit their cultures. People don't quit leaders who love them. Welcome to the Best Self-Management Podcast. I'm David Hassel. And I'm Shane Metcalf. Me and David have been working together along with our co-founder, Nazar, and all the amazing other people that are a part of 15.5 for the last seven years. And we are not the same people that we were seven years ago. One of the things we're a big stand for is like, how do we actually embrace the whole person and understand that can we support someone in thriving in their whole life? And if we do, then they're probably going to contribute more at work. Your mission is to attract the best talent, retain your high performers, and maximize everyone's potential. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Best Self-Management Podcast. We're really thrilled today to invite in Scott Miller. Now, Scott has been with the Franklin Covey Company for 24 years, and he serves as the Executive Vice President of Thought Leadership. He's the host of On Leadership with Scott Miller, a weekly leadership podcast, webcast, and newsletter that features interviews with renowned business titans, authors, and thought leaders, and it's distributed to more than 6 million business leaders worldwide. Scott leads the strategy, development, and publication of Franklin Covey's best-selling books and thought leadership, and is the author of Franklin Covey's Management Mess to Leadership Success, 30 Challenges to Become the Leader You Would Follow. I got to pick up the book, Scott. He's also the co-author of Wall Street Journal bestseller, Everyone Deserves a Great Manager, The Six Critical Practices for Leading a Team. Now, I'm really thrilled. In the preamble, before we started recording, I asked Scott if he has uh, counter views and counter beliefs to some popular ideas in the business world. He said, where do you want me to start? <laughs> and he, he laid out three myths that HR is holding to the detriment of our companies and our success. And so, Scott, really excited to have you here. Can't wait to bust some myths with you. Shane, David, it's my pleasure. Thank you for the platform. Let me be very clear. I'm very pro HR. I still have my job because HR saved me from myself on numerous conversations. So let's make sure that context is put in there. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think it's amazing, right? We can love HR. We can truly respect, honor, celebrate HR leaders of the world while also helping them think clearer and be more effective and up-level all of our games, right? Because that's what HR is doing is saying, hey, we need to operate as a more effective organization and we need to, just with science, we need to update our worldviews as new information becomes available. Well said. So Scott, before we get into your three myths, how are you doing today, man? I'm great. You know, fall has just come to Salt Lake City. Uh, our three sons that are six, eight, and 10 are still thriving in live person school. So they leave the house every day for six hours and that's and don't, going Don't well. make and, all the other parents out there too jealous. <laughs> right. Yes. Well, no, 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 no. Don't be jealous that I am paying for three private school tuitions. My kindergartner's oh, yeah. tuition is more expensive than my college. So, oh, we're paying for that stability. <laughs> yes. That's my yeah. Porsche. <laughs> yeah. So Scott, you've been with Franklin Covey for a long time. And I, I mean, David, I don't even know about your history, but Franklin Covey's work was super influential on me, you know, reading Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. 
um, my first job ever, and I, I had a, got a job in private equity and finance, which is just the wrong industry for me. But um, I went to one of Franklin Covey's time management seminars and a lot of things stuck with me, you know, really like planning my day, being more deliberate with where I'm putting my attention. How do I prioritize? And so it's, it's just really cool. I mean, Franklin Covey is one of the most iconic names in the business world. And so it's a real honor to have you on today. Well, I've been honored to be with Franklin Covey. 25 years, Dr. Covey was my coach and mentor for 15 of it. He passed about 10 years ago, but uh, I'm about two months shy of 25 years and had nine separate careers in the organization. And it's my honor to be here. Yeah, I mean, same, same with me. I was going to say, I mean, I started my career 21 years ago and I recall my first company putting us through some of the Franklin Covey training and uh, using some of the planners and all that. So definitely kind of... Uh, set a little bit of a spark in my uh, desire to be really highly productive and and uh, learning about, you know, and then moving on to things like getting things done later on in my my life uh, as yeah. other practices. Yeah, we can relate. So Scott, let's bust some myths. Where do you want to start? Yeah, I'd say the first one is that leaders create engagement. We hear this a lot. There is this concept that a leader's job is to create engagement. And, and I think that's a nice pithy thought and saying and everybody's talking about engagement, right? That's like the big thing is how do you create engagement, especially in a pandemic where everybody's virtual and there's no connectedness and leaders are tempted to check on versus check in. There's a myth right there, right? Is a leader's job is actually to check in, not check on. But this idea is that leaders create engagement and leaders do not create engagement. I cannot make you engaged. What I can do, however, is to create the conditions, the culture, the environment, the setting. Leaders create the conditions for others to choose their own level of engagement, high or low. And we know this adage is true from HR, that people don't quit their jobs, they quit bad bosses and corrupt cultures. So I, I would argue that perhaps the number one responsibility of a leader right now in this pandemic is to create the conditions for people to choose a high level of engagement. That may look very different in different settings, but it's a subtle difference. But you, as a leader, ask yourself, what does that mean for me to create conditions where people choose a high level of engagement? It might be a different condition for each member of your team. Well, and I love it too, because if as a leader, I think it's my job to create engagement, I'm putting myself in the role as a hero, which is yeah. like, I'm, I get to stroke my ego and I get to feel significance because I'm creating engagement when that's actually... No, we're not. Like, I can't actually force anybody to choose anything else. Like, it takes away the personal responsibility. Shane, I think this is a good question for every leader to ask themselves. And for that matter, perhaps their human resource partner to coach their leaders on. I think that when you are a leader, you need to have a leader's mindset. And a leader's mindset is that my job is to achieve results with and through other people. Think about that. I mean, it's subtle, but it's again profound. My job is to achieve results. My job is to get work done with and through other people. And when you believe that is your key role in your mindset, everything changes. You slow down. You're more patient. You're more of a coaching mindset. You realize your job is to build capability, to build capacity in others, not to always be the genius in the room, to quote Liz Wiseman, wrote the book Multipliers, but to be the genius maker of others. No one wants to work for the smartest person in the room. So if you're creating conditions 
where people can choose high engagement, you're listening, you're being vulnerable, you're allowing people to bring their whole selves to work, you know, metaphorically or actually just physically. You're setting a culture where it's safe to use your own mistakes as teaching lessons and other people can freely talk about their own mistakes. They can share their fears, their passions, their journey as well. It takes a fundamental mindset shift to create conditions where people choose a high level engagement. Yeah, I actually want to talk about the kind of the opposite of that, because I think that there are a lot of organizations that have poor engagement because they haven't invested in creating those conditions. Like you know, when we talk about this a lot, actually, in, in our philosophy of best self-management, which is this, this idea that we can create environments that allow people to be and become their best selves, but there's a level of personal choice and responsibility that the individual has to make. But, you know, if you take like a great pine tree from out there in Salt Lake and you plant it in the desert, it's not going to do so well. Right. So it's, it really has to do a lot with the environment first. So so what are what are some of the things that you see organizations get wrong in creating and kind of thwarting that environment that that allows people to choose that engagement? I think organizations generally are making great progress on this. Right. You're, yes. You know, four, arguably five generations within the workplace now. And, and guys, I could be your father. I'm 52. But my generation was all about loyalty. Right. I mean, my father hey, worked not for so Lockheed. fast, man. Shane, it's a compliment. <laughs> My father worked at Lockheed Martin for 32 years, right? I've worked at Franklin Covey for 25 years. Yeah. Loyalty was a principle that we now feel wrongly the new generation is, is, is violating, right? The average career span is like 18 to 36 months. People are yearning Amazing. for multiple careers, right? They have, there's, there's no loyalty to companies anymore. That isn't something they're violating. It's just their values are different. Well, I also think that's actually not entirely true. I mean, you know, like we've had we've had a very contradictory experience at 15 and 5 of creating deep loyalty with millennials, for instance. A lot of millennials have been with us four, five, six, seven years now. That's great to hear. I, I don't think that's resemblant of the national average. I think it's the not. statistics show it's definitely not. It's dramatically yeah. less than that. So you're doing obviously some things very well. You're building a culture where they feel not just welcome, but they feel like they're valued, where their voice is heard. David, to your point, I have two friends that wrote a book called How Will You Measure Your Life? Karen Dillon, she's the former editor of the Harvard Business Review, and Clayton Christensen, who you well know, passed about a year ago. He was the famed author and Harvard business professor. And in this book, How Will You Measure Your Life? Extraordinary book where they take business principles and apply them to our personal lives. They share a research study that someone else conducted. And that was that 93% of organizations that achieve, quote, financial success do so through an emergent strategy versus a deliberate strategy, meaning 93% of successful organizations had to try something new. It wasn't the boss or the leader or the founder or the CEO's idea that won. It was somebody else's idea. It was a different tack. And I think where you can build high engagement is you've got leaders who lessen the chasm between they and their teams. That the hierarchy is less you know, vertical, it's more horizontal. That leaders don't feel the need to be the smartest person in the room. That they really have confidence and humility to engage and attract great talent and to clear the path and to let people's voices be heard. I tell you, this is a, a funny saying, but I think most people my age will tell you they've got 30 years of experience. When often they've got one year of experience repeated 29 times. Oh, they found a formula, they found a strategy, they found a lane, and they just yeah. drove down it. 
And they're not open to the other experiences and perspectives and ideas from other people. And that's where you keep people, to your point, Shane, is where they feel valued and engaged and they can take risks, right? And they're allowed to fail. And that's seen as positive because they're learning, not at your expense, but with you. That, that's a culture where people choose to stay longer than the norm. I just came across a great Buckminster Fuller quote and it goes something like this. It's like something about like, experts are actually the greatest barrier to progress. Because when we're in the hierarchy and I'm the chief culture officer of the 15 and five, and I'm not willing to go into my SDRs and learn from them, you know, like actually I, I just, I just got an amazing download about how to hack LinkedIn's algorithm from one of my junior sales reps. I just love that you're quoting Buckminster Fuller. That's oh yeah, awesome. man. Yeah. Yeah. Bucky is a huge inspiration in my life. My, my high school principal actually used to design colleges with Buckminster Fuller. Bucky's brain's been mutating my brain from a pretty young age. I mean, and you call him Bucky. I call him Mr. You know, <laughs> Mr. Fuller. Yeah, yeah. You know, kids these days, you know. But yeah, you know, I mean, like if we are in that traditional hierarchy where we're the most intelligent and people below us don't have as good of ideas, we're going to rob ourselves and everyone else. It's a mindset shift for leaders that your expertise, your experience, your mindset, your lenses through which you see everything maybe holding back progress. Okay, so, you know, 2020 has been a bit of a bumpy road. You know, there's been a few potholes along the way. And I'm curious how the conditions for engagement changed this year. What are the conditions we need to create for people right now to be fully engaged? And can we even get there? You know, I mean, we've traditionally been one of like a 99th percentile engagement in our company. And, you know, we've taken some hits this year. Like there's been a lot of things and we're not at that level anymore. And I think that that's probably true across the board. But I'm really in that inquiry of what new conditions need to be created in this environment that is different than a year ago. Shane, I might pivot less about engagement and more about connectedness. As, as I give four or five keynotes a week virtually, uh, I'm keynoting the Utah Governor's Economic Summit on Monday. I have four or five next week. Almost everyone's talking about connection right now. I mean, every conference that I'm speaking at right now is all about building connection, connection yeah. between leaders and all of our virtual team members. A lot of leaders haven't seen their team members live in five, six, seven, eight months, haven't seen them and may not for that same period of time. So connection and engagement, I think, go hand in hand. Here's what I would say. Let me, let me shock the audience. A vaccine is going to come, right? The president says tomorrow, the vice president says next year, whenever, a vaccine is coming. And with any luck, we'll have enough public confidence in its efficacy and enough people will get it and we'll come out of this pandemic somehow. We don't know when, let's just say within the next year, maybe spring, maybe summer, right? We hope. And right now, all your employees, for the most part, you may take umbrance at this, but I think there's, there's broad truth. They're held hostage. People don't have a lot of options right now. No one's quitting their job. Few are quitting their job. But I guarantee you, when they have options, they will be choosing to stay or leave in your listeners' cultures and companies based on how they've been treated by their leaders during this time. They will stay or leave based on how your first-level, frontline, mid-level, senior, executive-level leaders have treated them. So I'd say the pressure is on David and Shane more than ever on your leaders 
because they own the culture. Your leaders are the linchpin of your culture. And they've got to be modeling all the things you want to see in them to make sure they are re-recruiting their team members through better connection all the time. For example, small things, right? I mentioned earlier this idea of checking in versus checking on. I'm shocked and horrified and depressed all the time when leaders ask me, well, I'm concerned my people aren't being productive and I'm not doing their jobs. And I like, I bite their heads off. I say, then shame on you, not shame on them. (laughs) If If you're worried that your team members aren't doing their job, then you sucked as a leader back in February because you didn't set the, the culture. You didn't set the expectations of what success looks like. That thought's never crossed my mind once in nine months. My team's working their hearts out. What I'm worried about is they're working too hard and they're burning out. That's yes. my problem. Yep. Never crossed my mind. So I think as a leader, you got to be vulnerable. This is a leadership competency in 2020. As a leader, share your own fears. Talk about how your kids are running around in their underwear on Zoom calls. Talk about your dog is barking. Talk about you're your working from your guest bedroom, how stressed you are. You're working 16 hours a day and your work, your office is now four feet from your bed. The more that the team can relate to you, they know they're not alone. As a leader, tell your team, you know what? I want everyone to take a two-hour lunch break tomorrow. I want you to go have lunch on me. Send me the receipt. I want you to walk around the block, breathe in some fresh air, Download a podcast. Don't think about work. We want you to be healthy and happy and balanced. We don't want you to burn out. We don't want you accepting the recruiter's call from a competition. We want you around here in the spring. Leaders have got to focus more on the mental, emotional well-being of their people now more than ever. Just because you're a badass, just because you work well with change, just because you've got a fat 401k or stock options, or because you've got a six-figure salary, no correlation with your level of security and that of the members of your team. Move out of your own ensconced mindset and wonder what's going on with my team. How are they feeling? They have groceries, their gas tank full. Can they get promoted in a virtual environment? Are they feeling respected and are they just a cog in a wheel? You work on that now, you'll be safe come May. You won't be spending your time recruiting people for the seven jobs that people left because they were poached by somewhere else. I want to talk directly to you listening in for just a moment. If you're enjoying these interviews, the concepts we discuss, and you're committed to equipping your managers to develop highly engaged and high-performing teams, there's some additional resources that we know can help. Access the forever free Best Self Management Certification at 155.com forward slash academy for core management skills that unfortunately are not taught in business school. Visit 155.com forward slash services to sign up for our manager accelerator program to reorient your managers around the essential skills needed to conduct effective one-on-ones, offer meaningful feedback, and coach their teams to greatness. If you want exceptional software that integrates beautifully with our education and training, visit 155.com today. Dan Pink has this great quote. He says that the business world is finally waking up to the reality that we are complex and dynamic human beings, not single-minded economic robots. You got Dan Pink and Buckminster Fuller in the same podcast. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. We'll throw in some Rumi, Hafiz. Uh, I don't know who those people are. Oh, you don't? Uh, great Persian Same mystic thing. poets. I figure they were Persian, yeah. Right. Yeah. 
truly some of the great like spiritual poets of David. Is he always doing this? Is he always throwing always in these great this. Persian poets? It is yeah. Fabulous. Yeah. My knowledge base is pretty thin on Persian poetry. Oh dude, you gotta, you gotta bulk up on that. It's really, it's some of the best out there. The Gift by Daniel Ladinsky is one of the best collections of Sufi poems out there. I'm okay. Just now saying. you're just I'm crossing just the line in your Sufism. Let's come on. Let's do it. All right. Okay. So treating people like, like, and I love this distinction of check in versus check on, right? Of like, if you don't trust your people, you're going to be checking on them. If you trust your people, you'll be checking in. You'll actually be remembering we all have hearts and we need to actually connect with the hearts of the people that work in our companies. So any further distinctions of how people can make sure they are checking in versus checking on? Yeah, and maybe it's the third myth or a second myth that I might debunk as part of this. And that is we hear this phrase, not just from HR, but I think HR probably believes this as well, because they're in the people business, thankfully. Like I mentioned, they saved me from myself on numerous occasions. This idea that people are an organization's most valuable asset is not true. It makes for a great you know, town hall slide, but it's not true. People are not your company's most valuable asset. It is the relationships between those people that creates your unbeatable culture. Because now you can steal everything. And the Far East is. Every patent, every supply chain, every board member, every logo, every pricing model, technology, everything can and is and will be stolen from you. What cannot be duplicated is how Shane treats David and how David treats Shane. Because Shane can have a master black belt in Six Sigma and David can be a Rhodes Scholar from Oxford. But if Shane and David can't get we along- are neither of those things. Well, neither am I, but you know, there's hope for you both. Yes. Um, spend less time on Persian poetry and more on, um, on <laughs> just uh, defects. See. It's how Shane and David treat each other, right? Do they compliment each other? Do they forgive each other? Do they pre-forgive each other? Because Shane's going to say something that pisses David off. And David's going to do something to disappoint Shane. But in your culture, it's these relationships that determines how fast stuff gets done. That's right. Our number two core value, we have four core values. Number two is cultivate relational mastery because we put such a high degree on that. Because I, and I, I also rail against the idea of you know saying that people are human resources or people are assets. I mean, if you look up the definition of asset, it's something that can be owned and controlled to create value. And yeah. uh, last time I checked, uh, most people don't like to be owned and controlled to you know create value on behalf of a company. And you know, it's maybe it's a colloquialism that we don't mean it to be literally an asset. Yes. But the fact of the matter is, if all leaders, including the human resource leaders that are coaching and hiring and promoting the leaders in your company, we'll get to that as a third myth, if they really drill into the leaders that your job is to build relationships, your job is to build trust, to model trust, your job is to build a culture where it's safe to tell the truth where it's safe to make mistakes, where it's safe to admit your fears and your insecurities, where vulnerability is a strength, not a weakness. That's a powerful culture. People don't quit their cultures. People don't quit leaders who love them. That's a powerful statement. And I mean that just like I said it. I've been here 24 years. I have endless opportunities outside Franklin Covey. People ask all the time, why have you been there 24 years? The CEO loves me. We fight like cats and dogs. He's like my dad. I'm like his college son, and, but he loves me. He loves my wife. He loves my three kids. He cares about me as a human. And so it's hard to quit him because he loves me. 
And my phone rings all day long with people wanting me to represent their products and write their books and be their CMO. Sorry, Bob loves me. I, I, I'm staying. See, this is why I read Sufi poetry because it's all about learning how to love better. You know, like if we can love better, then we're going to bring that love to our teams. Shane, I'm so close. I'm so close <laughs> to your <laughs> love of Sufi poetry. Yeah. <laughs> I know, man. Well, check this out. This is a really good poem from Hafiz. All right, David, says, hang in there. You owe me, okay. David. You owe me, bro. Yeah, man. Just wait. Just you wait. Okay. The title is Even After All This Time, mm -hmm. The Sun Never Says to the Earth, You Owe Me. Look what happens with a love like that. It lights up the whole sky. Pretty good, huh? Pretty good, right? <laughs> kind of relevant to being a leader, yes. building cultures where we actually love our people. You know, in the last 12 months, I've been on 160 podcasts and not once have I had a host quote, <laughs> hey man, you know, we've been doing a lot of podcasts. This is the first time I've quoted a Sufi poet. So it's something about your presence is bringing out the poetry. Uh, you know, I'm a Renaissance man. Yeah. It's hard great. Rate. So it's relationships between your people is the greatest yeah. asset, not your people. And I mean, I love this. Like I was just busting David's balls right before getting on this call and being like, dude, this is, you got to work on this, you know? And he's like, uh, not right now, Shane. You know, we're like, ur, ur, ur. and it's like, we love each other so much. You know, like there's so much, there is that pre-forgiveness and allows so much freedom. Now, building this kind of relationship between employees, between employees and managers, building a culture where people have quality relationship. Lead us through your favorite tips and tricks to up-level and as we say, cultivate relational mastery. Yeah, I think a couple of things I'd say right at the top. This comes from you know my 25 years at Franklin Covey, my 30 years in the culture leadership business. Beyond systems and structures and strategies and mission and vision and values, these things we hear all the time that are very important to leaders. My life experience tells me that the number one job of the leader is to recruit and retain talent. Recruit and retain talent. And as a leader, that means you have to be humble enough to hire people who are smarter than you and who are more talented than you, that are palpably, noticeably have expertise better than you. That's first. Second most important role of a leader is to give people feedback on their blind spots. And I think too often leaders lack the courage to step to the plate, to move outside their comfort zone, to discuss the undiscussables. This is your job. If you are a formal leader of people, you must step down from that role. If you are a coward and cannot give people feedback on their blind spots, because this is the biggest gift you can give anyone, you will be a transition figure in someone else's life. Now, this is easier said on a podcast than done, right? It takes role playing and there's an art to it and your body language and your pitch and your tone and your rate and the power differential and the physicality and creating a culture where you've made it safe for the other person to trust your intentions. The number one technique is to declare your intent. Shane, I brought you in my office today because my intent is to help you build a phenomenal career here at our company. I can see this career. That's my intent. And Shane, I want to give you some feedback on some things that I'm seeing you do in weekly meetings that not only is hijacking that vision for a great career here, it could actually terminate that vision and end your employment. When people know what your intent is, 
they suspect less, right? Because absent you declaring it, they'll make one up. They'll assign one to you. Everyone's got an agenda. So you as a leader, if you want to create connection, if you want to build relationships, you need to care more about that person than yourself. Care more about their success than them liking you. This is a gift that can transform someone's career. And you have to balance the feedback with courage and consideration. Because that's my problem. I'm HR's worst nightmare. I have no shortage of courage. I'll talk to anybody about anything. I'll talk about your personal hygiene. I'll talk about your clothing choice. I'll talk about your vocabulary. You know, I have to be mindful of not exceeding enough courage, too much courage, because I can verbally eviscerate someone. I can rob them of their self-esteem, their confidence, their self-worth. I have to balance consideration diplomacy with my courage. And of course, David, you know the opposite tr is true. You have a leader who lacks courage, but they've got an abundance of diplomacy. And so they're so shy and so retiring and so obfuscating, they call somebody in, they place them on a performance plan, and the person leaves their office wondering, what was that about? Because it was so you know, careful and sweet and no one knows that they're on a 30-day performance. It's a balance of both, right? Courage and consideration. I love it. So, someone told me recently, they said, you know, if someone genuinely knows you care about them, they can hear almost anything, right? If it's coming from a place of like, if you actually know that, that so I have your best interest at heart, yeah. I can really say anything and have that be more likely uh, listened to. Something, David, that I've learned too is it's important to declare your intent. And I'd offer your, your, your audience, use those words. First, I'd like to declare my intent. My intent is not to embarrass you. My intent is not to capitalize on you or humiliate you or do anything other than give you some feedback on some of your blind spots. By the way, I have my own blind spots. I'm sure right now you're thinking of all of my blind spots. Share those with me another day. Once you declare your intent, you can also say, and by the way, I'm a little bit nervous. I may not use the right words. Pre-forgive me. I might ask for a do-over. My intent is to talk to you about what I see as some behavior. You get the point, right? If, if you just share your vulnerability, most people will get past your technique and judge you on your intent. I mean, it's making the implicit explicit. Because I think well, it is like all the time we're like, oh, no, I care about this person. I don't know why they responded so negatively here. It's like, they don't know you actually care about them. There's so much that we aren't actually revealing. Shane, you nailed it. Or you've not demonstrated your care to them, to their satisfaction prior to that meeting. Yeah. I did a keynote last week where a CEO asked me, how does he get people to take his feedback? And I said, you have to be the best model of taking feedback. You have to behave yourself into a reputation of credibility on that topic. They have to know that it's safe. They have to understand what your intent is. You can't just call someone in and hope that they trust you. No, you got to earn that trust through hundreds of encounters. You don't just build trust overnight. Well, you know, I'll, I'll counter that a little bit because I think trust does accumulate over time and trust can be granted. I think we can just give people our trust. And then it's a process of maintaining and encouraging it. But I do think that like, if we're always looking for people, they have to earn my trust or you have to earn my trust, it's going to be a much slower start than actually granting it. I agree. There's a concept of smart trust. And I think where most leaders misinterpret it is everyone thinks they're trustworthy. 
I'll give an audience to 6,000 people. Raise your hand if you're trustworthy. Every hand goes up. And I say, nope, put him down. Who decides if you're trustworthy? It's not you. It's the other person. Have you built a reputation in their mind of being trustworthy? You can extend trust to them, but people don't trust you typically until you've earned it. I think it's a fact of life. Yeah, right. It's like, am I a great husband? You know, ask my wife. She's the one that's actually going to be the true judge of whether I'm a great husband or not. Yep, beautifully said. Super interesting. Build the right conditions for engagement, which is more about connection than it is about office snacks or there's a woman, uh, not the HR lady, is is her personal brand. And she just wrote a book called uh, F*** Your Office Snacks. And uh, it's, it's a, you know, it's a pretty funny title and I, I haven't read it yet, but it's, I think it's about this idea of, like, <laughs> you know, it sounds like something that Patty McCord from Netflix would write. Totally. Totally. Uh, what's up, Tara? Looking forward to our conversation soon. Okay. So conditions for engagement, not building engagement, connection and relationships and the critical importance of feedback loops and truth telling and care, you know, uh, radical candor, you know, not obnoxious aggression, not ruinous empathy, but actually loving people and straight up loving people. Oh my God, what a concept. Okay. Third myth, not all managers should be managers. Not all leaders should be leaders. Not everyone should be a leader. I'm a bit of a pariah in the leadership development industry because there is this safe mantra. Everyone's a leader. Everyone. No, I'm sorry. I don't agree with that. I know I can debate with the best of them. Like everybody owns the culture and everyone has leadership within them. Lead your 401k, lead your project. But I'm talking about leading people. Not everyone should be a people leader. Just like not everyone should be an anesthesiologist or a commercial airline pilot. Me first amongst those. Not everyone should be a leader of people. And I think in too many organizations, same cycle repeats itself. We promote the top producing individual producer. We promote the most efficient dental hygienist or the most creative digital designer. Or in most cases, the top producing salesperson. Why does the top producing salesperson, the person who met the last 12 quarters, become the sales leader? That is a catastrophe waiting to happen. Let's deconstruct it. I was Franklin Covey's top salesperson for many years, right? Let's describe me. I am uber competitive. I like to win against everyone. I want to be in the top of the leaderboard. I want to earn the most money. I want to be the first called up on stage at Maui at Chairman's Club. I want to compete. I want to win. I love the line. Horrible manager. I'm a hold on. Don't don't lose my punchline, (laughs) right? Read some Sufi poetry for 10 more seconds. I love the spotlight. I love the limelight. These are actually great characteristics of top producing salespeople. But like you just said, Shane. These are horrible competencies for a sales leader. You don't want your sales leader in competition for fame. You don't want her in competition for money. You want a sales leader that feels accomplished when their sales people are making more money than she is. That's the sign of a successful sales leader. So instead, you should be recruiting people that take the delight in the success of others around them that understand that humility is a strength, not a weakness that are confident enough in their own skills where they take great joy in recruiting and promoting people who are smarter than them 
and surveying where all that talent is outside in the organization, not held tight in their own division. I think that too often we promote these top individual producers, they get into these leadership roles and realize, oh my gosh, I had no idea. This is the job, I hate this job. They often implode and now they're way too embarrassed to go back to their sales role and they leave. And now you've lost not just your top producer, you've lost your leadership pipeline. So be really thoughtful around who you recruit into leadership. And I think I'll be brutally honest. Let me tell you all the things that you do well. Bam, 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 bam. Tomorrow, when we promote you, six of those eight competencies are not going to work as a leader. You're going to have to leave them behind. And on the other side of the T-chart, there are 14 things you're going to have to learn that right now you don't possess. That's okay. We'll help teach you. But you're going to have to learn these new competencies because Shane and David, the science shows the average age someone receives their first promotion into their management position, age 30. But yet the average age that manager receives their first leadership development training, age 42. There is an empirical 12 years where the Scott Millers are wrecking havoc across your organization, not because we're sociopaths. We just haven't been trained. We don't know what it means to move from top salesperson to sales leader. You gotta teach us, you gotta show us. Say this, don't say that, do this, don't think that, don't think this way, think that way. Had someone told me these things back 15 years ago, I wouldn't be the CMO, I'd be the CEO. There's a comma difference in compensation between those two things. Gallup has a scathing take on this. Yes, that's what I was going to ask. And and they, they say nine out of 10 managers shouldn't be managers. Yeah. They, yeah. They, they, they straight up do not have the competencies and strengths that actually go into being a great people leader. Does not mean they're bad people. It means oh. they're bad managers, right? I mean, I could not be an anesthesiologist. I mean, I probably could, but the 20 years it would take to learn it isn't worth it. By the way, it's okay because I think in organizations, the only way to get promoted is too often to be a leader of people. It's that way mostly in high tech. Yep. You won't get promoted if you don't lead a team of six or eight people. Completely wrong incentives. Right. These organizations lure, not lead. They lure people into management positions and there's no track to become just a great individual producer where people come, they give it their all and they go home. And so I'd say, I don't mean to be an organizational development consultant, but I've been around enough to know, to your point, Shane, wrong incentives. You need to make it just fine for people to have great careers, but are not lured into leadership roles as the only way to get promoted or earn more money. Well, and to be clear, it's, you know, it's compensation. You need to be able to have, make as much money as your manager peers and have the same social status Correct. as your peers. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, we see some of the most progressive leaders have parallel tracks. You have a, a management leadership track and you have an IC track, yeah. but that has the stature and the status and the compensation going up on par. I have encountered that almost never. I've encountered it twice. Yeah, well said. Yep, very, very. Yeah. But, but it's a wake up call for your audience to be thinking about, okay, you know, A, be much more deliberate around being transparent and vulnerable around what this leadership role is going to look like and feel like and what your life's going to be like. And is this the right role for you? Because once you're in, it's hard to step back. That's why I will coach a lot of organizations to say, be very transparent up front. We're going to move Shane into a leadership role for a 90-day period of time. 
And we're both going to decide, is it the right thing? And if Shane steps back, everyone should know that's not a problem. In fact, we'd rather Shane step back than stay in. If we both don't feel it's the right role, we go into this with no suspicion. No one try to create your own narrative. Shane and I will together decide, is this the right position for him? And he and I will be talking consistently for 90 days. And if and when he stays, great. And if and when he steps back, great. It's great. You talked about that 12-year leadership gap and the, and the training gap. I mean, that's exactly why we just recently released this program called From Manager to Leader through our Best Self Academy to try to close that gap for organizations. What are some other things that you recommend in terms of things along those lines or you know, programs there's to put great, in place? There's a great Stephen Covey course. There is, but, but, but I don't care about that on today's podcast. I, I, like you, I'm passionate about this topic, right? The last book that I wrote was called the six critical practices for leading a team. I think the first practice I mentioned earlier was develop a leader's mindset. Because when you realize your job is to get results with and through others, everything changes. And the second practice is um, effective one-on-ones. I could talk for an hour around what a one-on-one looks like. And by the way, the paradigm shift is it's your, it's your employees meeting, not yours. They lead it, not you. They do 80% of the talking. The leader does 20%. Second is build effective one-on-ones. I think developing a culture of feedback, I think managing through change, balancing your time and energy, all of the common things to really be asking yourself, do our people love working here? Can they see a career? Do they see a path? Do they enjoy engaging? Do they have an abundance mentality? Are they being nurtured right? as well? I think the power is shifting from organizations to people. And it's the nimble, agile leader that understands, this is going to sound like a cliche, the power is in the people. And this new generation, they care less, not, not at all, they care less about compensation and stock options and 401k. And they care more about life balance and meaning and contribution to having a voice and learning and change and options. Connection. And connection, that's exactly right. I gave a keynote speech for a Fortune 50 a year ago, I flew to Beijing. I met with this CEO of a billion-dollar division, like $8 billion division of this Fortune 50 company. And I was teaching this person's top 550 leaders in Beijing, the three-hour thing they flew me over for. I did a pre-consult with the leader at breakfast. And at breakfast, she told me that all that mattered was the stock price. This person had an MBA from MIT, super educated, about my age, I mean, she would have eaten my lunch intellectually. And at breakfast, she said, all that matters is the stock stock price is all that matters. And I looked at her and she'd not created the conditions for me to tell her the truth. She also was paying me $15,000. And I looked at her and my response was something like, I don't think all of the 800 people you just recruited coming out of college care about the stock price because they don't have enough stock to care about it. They care about a lot of other things. So you better have some value proposition for the 40,000 people that have a 10th as much stock as you because that's not going to keep people. That might keep people at Amazon. But I know your company and I've seen your stock price. and I've seen where it's been (laughs) and where it's going. And I'm telling you, you need a new value proposition for all of those people over there because they're not going to stay with your brand because of the stock price. You're completely wrong. I didn't share all of that, but I was thinking that. That's sad. 
I want to circle back to what you said about loyalty. I mean, you've been at Franklin Covey for 25 years. We've had way beyond industry norm loyalty in our company. And I don't think it's inevitable that this millennial generation is just not loyal. I think that the organizations out there are not meeting the needs of that generation. And I think exactly what you just said. I think loyalty is absolutely possible when you create that kind of environment. Yeah, well said. All right, Scott. Thanks for bearing with the Sufi poetry. I hope you go out and study a little Hafiz, a little Rumi. It's going to enrich your life in unimaginable ways. Where can people learn more about you? Where, I mean, I'm going to go buy your book. I'm probably giving it to a, several of our managers. Where can we sign up for a list? Where are you most active on social? How yeah. can people book you for a virtual keynote? That's gracious. And then a in-person keynote when we get the vaccine Someday. and we all come out of the caves. Yeah. Uh, I'm everywhere. My wife does not, says that not as a compliment. LinkedIn is probably my biggest platform. I'd love to have you connect. Follow me on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, you name it. But LinkedIn is probably the best site. You can visit me also at managementmess.com. The first book is Management Mess to Leadership Success. So you can visit me there. But LinkedIn is probably the best thing. I also, to quote... Earlier, I host the world's largest subscribed weekly leadership podcast called On Leadership with Scott Miller. And you can Google that. But I appreciate the platform, the conversation, the almost romantic Sufi poetry, the <laughs> Mr. Fuller quotes. David, thank you for your time. You've been a great nice to balance you, to shame. It's been great. It's been great. Yeah, I've really enjoyed this conversation. A compliment to you both. All right. Thanks, Scott. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you to our producer, Counterweight Creative. To our executive producer, David Misney, and guest coordinators, Sydney Lee and Suzanne Haight. One of the easiest things you can do to help us spread the message of being and becoming your best self at work is to write a review on Apple Podcasts, or just share this episode's link on your favorite social media channel. If you have any questions or comments, please email me and Shane at podcast at 15.5.com. We'd love to hear from you. And finally, thank you. Thank you.